Welcome back to the Krista CMS Educational Podcast Series. This month, we'll focus on the adult stroke, TIA, and CVA algorithm. We have lots to discuss during this episode, and we hope that you listen. If you are an associate, please take advantage of the CEs that will be provided on the Christus EMS website. In this episode, Dr. Euler and I will discuss the brain's anatomy with the arteries that provide circulation. We'll discuss risk factors and common stroke symptoms, including stroke mimics. We'll have a discussion related to the stroke assessment tool to identify possible stroke. And at last, the teams that can provide the care by EMS and ED staff. So sit back, relax. Our episode will be coming up next. But first, before we go into that, there's some news. Yes. Right? Yep. So uh, first, just want to uh, tell all of y'all how awesome y'all are. Um, Chris's EMS was recognized recently by the American Heart Association for the Mission Lifeline EMS Gold Plus Achievement Award. Um, this is all because of y'all uh, and Michael here. Uh, y'all all done an awesome job caring for patients. Uh, keep up the hard work. We appreciate everything y'all do uh, to help us achieve this this status. Um, some housekeeping. Um, Want to make sure that y'all are recording your intubations on the one scope. Um, it's very important that we get these recordings. Uh, it helps us to review intubations. It also helps with documentation, uh, and then it also helps with education uh, for you, but also future medics. Um, we are. Potentially looking at uh, making non-recordings of intubations a major A documentation error. Uh, so just keep that in mind uh, to record your intubations um, anytime that you you have to do that. Yeah, unfortunately, that that is the case, and we are going to use major A as uh, a means to actually record yep. the lack of of that information. So it's it's <clears throat> important that we get that because it really does help with with reviewing which. It's a, a high-risk procedure, so it's important that y'all do that. On the other part with the Mission Lifeline EMS Gold Plus Achievement Award, uh, that, like you said, was all everybody out there actually using the system, identifying um, every ACS patient with a 12-lead early, like within the first five minutes of patient contact, um, and then activating right where you're at, and that activation is something that goes from miking up and letting our comm officers know so they can pre or just alert. And it's not even a pre, it's an alert. It's starting the, the activation and then uh, you following up with more detailed information using Pulsera is one. Yep. Or LifeNet. Um, Life that's one thing we wanted to emphasize as well. Uh, we asked y'all just to review the activation protocols for the different hospitals that we transport to. Um, they all have different protocols. Uh, some use Pulsera, some use LifeNet. So just review which hospitals use each product, uh, whether it's Pulsera or LifeNet, to activate your code strokes, code stimmies, uh, to make sure that we're getting that, that done appropriately. Because overall, when we look at AHA, they tell you about 80% are ischemic, and mm -hmm. then the, there's a 80 to 90, and then there's a smaller percent hemorrhagic. I think I still see a lot more ischemic, uh -huh. um, but we I do see quite a bit of hemorrhagic strokes. I actually saw one yesterday at, at Maine when I was on shift. So I do see a fair share of hemorrhagic strokes. Usually it's from hypertension. Yeah, uh, They have hypertensive uh, emergency and then they have hemorrhagic CVA. Uh, but I, I would say I definitely see far more ischemic. ischemic yeah. East Texas is a lot of people just have a whole lot of comorbidities and, and high risk for strokes. How many of you know somebody that's had a stroke? 
Oh, it would be very likely everyone, everyone raises knows somebody. Yes. I would be surprised if, if there's someone that doesn't know somebody that's had a stroke. Yeah. Or, or, or a family, family member, member. Yeah. a close friend. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty common, unfortunately. So it's it's um, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so the management of it, identifying it, uh, and getting patients the appropriate care is, is very important. So that's really why we wanted to focus on this today. Like I said, it's going to be a pretty a, a broad discussion. Um, we don't have a case going to kind of lead us into our discussion. So we're just going to go ahead and get on into it uh, and talk about stroke in general. And then we'll get into uh, identifying strokes. Uh, managing strokes, and then uh, what our protocols are. So what's important about EMS when it comes to stroke care? So identifying stroke and activating it early. um, Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about it here in a little bit. I've got some uh, information about it, but really identifying it, activating it, and getting patients to the appropriate facility, whether it's a primary care stroke center or a comprehensive stroke center. Oh, you brought that up, didn't you? (laughs) We'll get to that too. Okay. Okay, good deal. (laughs) Uh, so kind of start off, uh, strokes, as Michael has said, are, and so a stroke is essentially when blood flow is cut off or reduced, uh, depriving the brain of blood supply and oxygen. There's, uh, from say there's about 795,000 strokes every year, uh, is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and the leading cause of adult disability in the United States. Uh, on average, uh, about every 40 seconds, someone in the United States has a stroke. That is very mm-hmm. frequent, very common. Most common is ischemic strokes. It's about 87% of all strokes. Uh, it's caused by a blockage in the artery, stopping normal uh, blood flow and oxygen supply to the brain. There's really two types. There's embolic strokes and throm- uh, thrombotic strokes. So an embolism or an embolic stroke is from a blood clot or plaque fragment from somewhere else within the body that gets lodged in the brain. So patients that have atrial fibrillation are at risk of developing clots and throwing a clot to the brain, causing a stroke. There's thrombotic strokes, um, which is essentially a blood clot that forms within that artery Mm -hmm. uh, and causes decreased blood flow and oxygen supply to the brain. So there's several arteries within the brain, whole nother discussion. The anatomy of the brain is very intricate, uh, the arterial blood supply. Uh, I'm going to focus on just the main arteries. Uh, there's the ACA, uh, MCA, the anterior cerebral artery, the middle cerebral artery. Those are probably the more common mm-hmm. uh, sites of, of an embolic or thrombotic stroke. Yeah. You can also have posterior circulation strokes. Um, so these are patients that are going to be dizzy. They may have be ataxic. Uh, there's basilar artery. Some of the more infrequent ones are going to be your superior cerebellar artery, your posterior cerebellar artery, uh, your anterior inferior cerebellar artery, your posterior inferior cerebellar artery, and then lacunar uh, infarcts, which I, I've seen several of. Um, these are pure sensory motor deficits. Huh. Uh, so that's something to be aware of, but we do see those pretty frequently as well. That's not something we'll, we will never be able to tell in pre-hospital what the distribution is, but you can have an idea based off of their symptoms. Right. Um, you may not know it's a <clears throat> MCA, but based off their symptoms, you may suspect it's an MCA stroke uh, or a lacunar stroke. Uh, so you had, you had brought up several posterior circulation, right? Yes. So um, when you look at uh, assessments for that, that that's becomes a little bit more than like what the Cincinnati yes. would actually do. So those are expanded yes. neuroassessments. Absolutely. When you look at those. Yeah. Where's the Circo Willis come in? Um, so that has to do with 
everything. I mean, the circle of Willis is supplied by the vertebral arteries, and then you get it the branches of your pica, your AICA, uh, that branch off of the circle of Willis, okay. um, as well as the MCA, ACA. So it's really the whole blood supply. Right. That the circle of Willis is all the arteries together. Hemorrhagic strokes, which is the other type of of a stroke, uh, obviously, uh, is about thirteen uh, percent of strokes. Um, so it's, it's not uncommon, but it's just not the most frequent cause of strokes. Uh, this is usually caused by breakage within a blood vessel of the brain. It can be from trauma. It can be from a ruptured aneurysm, uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. There's two types, intraparenchymal uh, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. Intraparenchymal is when you have a bleed within the brain. These uh, are blood vessels that burst, causing blood to leak into the brain tissue. Subarachnoid hemorrhage is when you have a blood vessel that bursts at the surface of the brain, causing blood to pour outside of the brain. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, I've always, I've heard this term before, uh, malformation. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that actually cutting off blood supply or the malformations could actually cause uh, what you were showing here with the, uh, the actual hemorrhagic? So an AV malformation can actually can rupture and cause bleeding, uh, which can cause a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, I suspect that you probably could get some blockage depending on kind of what it, it what it, how it presents, mm -hmm. um, but it can definitely cause bleeding and, and rupture with that AV malformation. And that's just a vessel that's just got a very strange angles yes. to it. Yeah. That's all yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, there's TIAs, which I'm sure we all see frequently as well. Um, these are stroke-like symptoms caused by a clot. TIA is an emergency. So if you have a patient who had some symptoms and they've resolved, resolved yeah. I would still be concerned about strokes. So uh, watching, I guess, this TIA definition through the years have changed, mm -hmm. haven't they? It's definitely changed, yeah. Because it was at one time a TA, was a TA if it resolved within 24, 24 hours. hours. Mm -hmm. But we don't wait 24 hours to make no. that determination. No, right? that's something I think after they've been admitted to the hospital, evaluated by neurology, that's a determination they'll make. Yeah. Um, not necessarily something that, especially pre-hospital, we would make. Because in pre-hospital, we might actually show up where they were having a deficit and it resolved yeah. in our presence yeah. or before us. Yeah. I had a, so it becomes key that we we acknowledge and document. Yeah, absolutely. That, right? I had a patient yesterday in a hospital who developed third speech at home. Family noticed it. EMS got there. It resolved prior to them coming to the hospital. So was it a TIA? Was it a stroke? Either way, we treat it the same that patient got admitted to the hospital and we'll get further evaluation so you say admit and evaluate they're actually looking for the genesis of what may be causing it yeah so they can reverse and not maybe have the big stroke yeah is, yep. is looking at so 15 percent probability if they have a ti of developing a stroke after stroke-like symptoms that fit a tia they, wow okay yeah. So kind of like we talked about earlier in East Texas, uh, we have a whole lot of comorbidities among all of us. Um, the risk factors for developing a stroke, there's controllable and uncontrollable risk factors. Um, uncontrollable risk factors are, are age, gender, race, family history. If you've had a stroke in the past, if you've had a TIA, uh, which again, 15% of strokes can occur after a TIA. Controllable causes um, are high blood pressure, uh, hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol, diabetics, smokers, uh, alcohol use, uh, physical inactivity, uh, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, heart disease, and history of atrial fibrillation. So a lot of controllable risk factors. East Texas in general, we're just not 
controlling very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and increases our, our risk of developing a stroke. I was I was looking at a few of those items personally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so let's get into kind of some stroke-like symptoms and, and what we'll identify. So the right hemisphere, you may develop uh, or see patients that come in with slurred speech or dysarthria. They may have weakness, numbness to the left side of the face, left side of the arm, left side of the leg. They may have left side neglect and a right gaze uh, uh, deviation or right gaze preference. And that's with that left side of neglect. Uh, involvement of the left hemisphere, you may have aphasia. So they may not talk to you at all. They may have an expressive aphasia. They may have a receptive aphasia. They may have problems with comprehension. Um, then they'll have right-sided weakness or numbness and a left gaze deviation or left gaze preference um, with some right-sided neglect. Then you can get brainstem strokes. Um, these are going to be patients that are going to come in with nausea, vomiting, dizziness, kind of like a posterior CVA. Uh, they may have some speech problems, swallowing problems. They may have nystagmus. Uh, they may have loss of consciousness or decreased consciousness. And then you may have crossed findings. So left-sided deficits and right-sided deficits. Mm. Uh, and then intracerebral hemorrhage or a, a hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, with intraparenchymal hemorrhages, you'll have nausea, vomiting, headaches. You may have um, uh, unilateral uh, weakness. You may have decreased consciousness. Uh, with subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're going to come in complaining of the worst take out of their life, sudden onset, thunderclap. Uh, they'll have intolerance to light. They may have some neck stiffness, pain to their neck. Uh, and so those are patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So when we think about strokes, there's a lot of stroke mimics. And when we um, are evaluating patients, these are things that we need to worry about. Um, so alcohol intoxication, you can have cerebral infections. Uh, patients can have a drug overdose. And then patients with trauma having an epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma. Patients are hypoglycemic, hyperglycemic with other metabolic disorders, DKA um, migraines. You can get a complex migraine and those can cause stroke-like symptoms. So sensory deficits to their arm, their leg, um, may cause some dizziness. Um, you can get neuropathies that will present with sensory deficits. Seizure, um, so patients that are um, post-ictal can have what's called Todd's paralysis and they can get um, paralysis that is unilateral. You can have brain tumors that can cause stroke-like symptoms and then hypertensive encephalopathy, hypertensive emergency. So again, with strokes, this is something that, that is really emphasized pre-hospital and in the EMS policy and literature. So the main thing is going to be supporting the ABCs. So airway, breathing, circulation. Uh, you want to perform a pre-hospital stroke assessment. Um, here at Christus EMS, we use the Cincinnati uh, pre-hospital stroke scale and RACE or rapid arterial occlusion evaluation, which I'll go to into more detail um, here in just a little bit. Um, an important piece when you're evaluating patients talking with family is going to be establishing when the patient was last known normal. That's very important for stroke care uh, to determine if the patient is a candidate for TPA uh, or endovascular therapy. So that's really important. I emphasize finding out when that patient was last known normal. And then rapid transport to the nearest primary stroke center or comprehensive stroke center. Uh, and um, you can bypass hospitals that do not have stroke resources if a stroke center is within reasonable transport range. Uh, and then alerting receiving hospital 
um, as soon as you identify concern for a stroke, that you have a code stroke. All right. Um, and that's very important. That gets um, neurology involved. It lets the hospital know that you may have a patient that is either going to need TPA or endovascular therapy. So as soon as you identify a stroke, you need to alert the, the receiving hospital. All right. So um, remember rapid transport uh, to the nearest primary or comprehensive stroke center and alerting that hospital that you have a patient with concerns for or for a stroke with stroke-like symptoms is very important. Getting further into that, uh, the goal of stroke care is minimizing brain injury and maximizing patient's recovery. So that's why it's important to transport rapidly and alert the receiving hospital. Uh, so stroke designations, um, there's primary stroke centers and comprehensive stroke centers. Primary stroke centers um, can stabilize and provide emergency care for patients with an acute stroke. Can you give me an examples of some primaries in our area? So uh, for <clears throat> us, primary is going to be uh, Chris's Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. uh, Longview Regional uh, is a primary stroke center. And then um, we have uh, several others um, that are not affiliated with Christus. Um, there's going to be Titus Regional Medical Center in Mount Pleasant. There's UT Henderson, UT Pittsburgh, UT Quitman, UT Athens. Um, and then Marshall is also with Christus uh, is a primary uh, stroke center. What about what about Kilgore and North Park? So Kilgore and North Park, we have capabilities. Uh, they fall under Christus uh, Good Shepherd Longview. So mm -hmm. we have capabilities to take care of these stroke patients. We get teleneurology involved and we can give TPA at these facilities and transfer them to the main hospital for admission. So they fall under the umbrella of right. Longview's. Now, I know hospital. that your your focus has been mostly um, at the Good Shepherd system, mm -hmm. but I, I also think Canton mm -hmm. has So been... Mother Francis, yes, uh -huh. that's right. You're absolutely right. So Mother Francis, um, they're actually, at, at, and Tyler is, are a comprehensive stroke center. Okay. Um, just like UT Tyler is. Uh, but there's uh, Tree Mother Francis Winsboro, Tree Mother Francis Silver Springs, Canton, that will fall under that primary stroke center because of their affiliation with uh, and they uh, even North have Texas one in the south side of town that can that. receive that okay. too. Yeah. And then Jacksonville. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Jacksonville. <clears throat> yep. Absolutely. Cause they fall under mother Francis uh, system, just like North Park Kilgore fall, fall under good shepherd system in Marshall. Okay. Um, and we have in our CPGs, the, the different designations for the facilities around here uh, that I would encourage you to review as well. And they, it outlines primary and comprehensive stroke centers. So kind of talking about comprehensive stroke centers, really there's two uh, in this area, uh, Trey Miller Francis and UT Tyler. Uh, so a comprehensive stroke center can provide all levels of stroke care. Uh, so they have neurointerventionalists that can provide special interventions and highly technical procedures, uh, which is um, for large vessel occlusions, uh, things like that, they can take them to an vascular suite for, for higher care. Um, so Getting further into uh, assessing stroke patients. Um, so these are tools that I'm going to talk about uh, to help identify strokes quickly and uh, transport patients to the appropriate center. Pre-hospital assessment um, raises the accuracy of identifying a stroke. And so training is important. Knowing these, these, these assessment tools is very important. Uh, there's multiple tools. I'm going to go through what we use and what we recommend in our CPGs. 
but I'll briefly kind of talk about all the different stroke assessment tools for pre-hospital care. Um, there are no standards uh, set by the American Heart Association or the ASA for using one tool over another. It's really going to be uh, uh, independent of the EMS system. Uh, but I would en encourage all of y'all to use the, the Cincinnati protocol and the race uh, assessment tool. Um, so we have one uniform policy among our, our teams. So t tell me a little bit about that. So <clears throat> I know we had a conversation uh, with our, basically what we have on our uh, reports. And I think that under our objective uh, tab that we have a patient assessment mm -hmm. uh, piece there. And under there, we have all these different categories. Mm -hmm. There is actually a neuro, which actually covers a lot of the deficits that you might find in a Cincinnati yes. stroke scale. Mm -hmm. So if you actually hit on any one of those that seems to, um, to bring up a possible deficit, new or old, mm -hmm. and I guess that becomes another discussion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but more if it's a new um, finding, then we want to make sure that we now advance from just having that document there to the race. Yep, the right? documenting. So that kind of falls <clears throat> under the Cincinnati stroke assessment score. Mm -hmm. uh, so after you've done that, then I would assess for an LVO using the race uh, assessment race tool. Okay. I, there's a lot of apps out there to help assess patients using the Cincinnati stroke score, the race. Uh, I know we have it in our, in our system as well. Um, you can get it on your phone, um, and, and most of the time they're free, um, but they're good tools to, to use. I have it on my phone for when I'm in the ER to assess patients as well. Um, I use the NIHSS um, when they're in the emergency department uh, to help give me a, a score, and then when I talk with neurology, because that's what they typically use. So for our listeners, that score that you use, that's a a very complex yes it's a very it takes a while to go through the whole assessment for the uh, nihss um, and so I, it's not really conducive to pre-hospital right. so that's why these other tools the cincinnati the los angeles miami men's have all been developed because these are quick tools to identify possible strokes to help get patients to the care they need so we use an IHSS and we do multiple assessments. Neurology does assessments. They do assessments during their stay mm -hmm. uh, to kind of see the progression of, of their symptoms. Sounds like EMS is doing continued neuroassessments to look for the possibility of TIA or if it's continuing mm -hmm. yep. or if it's changing. Mm -hmm. And then you guys in the ER pick up with it mm -hmm. and then create a more complex one to, mm -hmm. to continue that same trend, yep, right? Absolutely. I mean, the care never stops and the assessments never stop. Um, we're constantly reassessing patients and, and seeing the progression or improvement yeah. of their symptoms. And that's before and even after the CT. Absolutely. Right? So it's that whole process. Yep. So I see a patient. So when a patient's come into the ER um, as the emergency physician, I see him, I do my evaluation, I give an IHSS score. The neurologist will sometimes be at bedside with me. Sometimes they come after I've evaluated the patient. They do their exam, then the nurses do their exam. So everyone is doing assessment and it continues throughout their stay. Talk real quick about two uh, stroke screening scores that, that we don't use within our EMS system, just to kind of briefly talk about them. One is the Los Angeles pre-hospital stroke screen. So this has screening criteria for patients over 45 uh, they have no previous history of seizure disorder. They have a new neurologic symptom uh, within the last 24 hours. If they were ambulatory at baseline, 
uh, if their blood sugar is 60 to 400. And so that's criteria to screen patients. Well, you're missing out on a lot of people. Right? You are, yeah. Neonates can have strokes. So uh, in residency, the youngest patient I've ever seen that had stroke symptoms and was given TPA was eight years old. Wow. Yesterday, I had a patient that was 29, uh, had came in with stroke-like symptoms, and we gave the patient TPA. Hmm. So I think you do miss a lot with those screening criteria. You miss a lot. Yeah. Um, and basically, the, when patients meet those criteria, the, what this score recommends is looking for grimace, looking for, for smile, facial asymmetry, looking for grip, grip strength, and any kind of weakness. So I, I, I don't think it's a great, just looking at it, I'm not a big fan of this screen tool. Then there's the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit Scale, which is the MENS. Um, and so this looks at mental status, cranial nerves, and uh, limb uh, sensory deficits and motor deficits. Essentially, for mental status, you're looking at level of consciousness. Uh, you're looking at their speech. You're asking questions uh, about their age. What month is it? And then asking them to follow commands. Can they open and close their eyes? Looking for, with the cranial nerves, facial droop or facial asymmetry. Uh, looking at visual field deficits. Do they have a gaze deviation or gaze, pre gaze preference? <clears throat> and then you're looking at uh, motor strength to their upper lower extremities, sensory deficits to their upper lower extremities, and then coordination. Do they have any dysmetria? Um, doing a finger and nose test, heel to shin test. And I think that coordination is the one that's missing in a lot of the other uh, other exams. Yes. Even at Cincinnati. Yep. So, yep. and that, that deals with more posterior circulation. So yes. more cellar bellum mm -hmm. right? yep. so that has to do with your posterior strokes uh, and those are patients that are have vertigo or dizziness they're ataxic uh, yeah. and will have some dysmetry as well you'd be surprised how many people actually miss out on that oh yeah yeah and we, and we probably don't assess it pre-hospital um as much as we should you know because it's probably not something that we think of or we see very often pre-hospital yeah. so the one that we we use and we want y'all to use is the cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale so this is going to be looking at facial droop. Um, do they have normal or abnormal asymmetry? Um, does the left and right side of the face move equal? That's going to be normal. Does one side droop or not move at all? That's abnormal. Then we're going to look at arm drift. There's normal, abnormal. Um, if both left and right arms move together, uh, then that is normal. If one arm does not move equally with the other, that is abnormal. Then we're going to look at speech. Is a patient slurring their speech? Do they have any dysarthria, aphasia? Do not. That is normal. If they have slurred speech, they can't use words appropriately, can't speak, um, then that is abnormal. And those are all things that we want you all to look at. And if the patient meets those, then that increases your suspicion for stroke. Um, once you've done that, we want you all to do the rapid arterial occlusion evaluation or RACE. And this is a tool that looks for large vessel occlusions. And uh, in, in our CPGs, we have a whole PDF looking at each assessment of that. So looking at facial palsy, ask the patient to smile. Can they show their teeth? And you're going to score 0, 1, 2, or 3. And that's based off of no palsy, mild asymmetry, or moderate to severe. Then you're going to look at uh, motor function of the arms. Can a patient extend their arms to 90 degrees? Uh, if they're sitting, 45 degrees if they're supine. And again, you're going to score 0, 1, 2, and 3. You're going to look at uh, leg motor function or impairment. Can they extend their legs to 30 degrees, 0, 1, or 2? 
and then gaze deviation or the eyes deviated to a certain uh, um, left or right um, are they able to track and this gets a score of zero or one then you're going to look at aphasia um, are they able to follow commands can they close their eyes make a fist do they have any dysarthria aphasia uh, this gets a score of zero one or two and then Ignacia, are they able to recognize their arm? Uh, do they have any neglect? Um, you're gonna ask them to ask, say, lift your arm up for me. Uh, say, whose arm is this? Uh, do you feel weak uh, in this arm? Um, and then if they do, you're gonna score zero, one, or two. So those are things that we look for for a large vessel occlusion that should increase your suspicion. And if it does, and you're close to a comprehensive center, which we'll get into more detail here in a little bit about where to transport patients, then these patients need to go to a comprehensive stroke center. But that there's some caveats to that, and yeah. we'll get into that. So a race score greater than five increases your suspicion for an LVO. Uh, less than five, you still need to consider stroke, but it's less likely to be uh, an LVO. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> we have TPA in the primary stroke centers that, that pretty much treat a wide variety of ischemic issues, mm -hmm. right? But then all of a sudden we've got this large vessel one. So I guess what we're saying is that those other ones are considered small vessel occlusions. While we have then we have a larger vessel which requires a different pathway. So with large vessel occlusions, you have pretty severe deficits. And so it usually involves your, your middle cerebral artery and from multiple studies and data, the best management is endovascular therapy to remove that clot, to give the, the brain the best chances of improvement and survival, to increase blood flow, increase oxygenation. And so if, if you don't have an LVO, um, you don't necessarily have occlusion of one of the main arteries to the brain. Okay. So it probably is going to be a smaller artery that's involved uh, or a smaller occlusion to the main artery that's causing some deficits, but it's not considered a large vessel occlusion that's causing severe deficits. So is there a time difference between, because I know that AHA puts a thing out on mm -hmm. <clears throat> just our primary stroke center recommendations for, you know, treating, mm -hmm. right? And there, and that's evolved over time because it used to be one thing and then they extended another hour and a half yep. on top of the three. And, yeah. <clears throat> but then when we get into large vessel, there's a whole different timeline on that one. Right? So within 24 hours, um, an LVO can can go to the endovascular suite, um, and that but that depends on what the brain perfusion scan looks like. Okay. So neurointerventionalists will look at the brain perfusion scan. If the patient has no uh, chance of improvement based off of that perfusion scan because of the size of the infarct, the extent of it, then they will make the determination whether or not the patient is a candidate for endovascular therapy. Um, but if a patient presents within 24 hours, from my standpoint, I'm always going to say they're a candidate. And then the neurointerventionalist can say, no, based off of this, this, and this, in their assessment, they may say, uh, this is not a candidate for endovascular therapy or clot retrieval. Okay. Uh, but that is, you got a great point. And we'll get into that here in a second. More about the time frame for TPA versus clot retrieval. or I'm not going to talk a lot about the NIH stroke scale. Um, it's a very in-depth assessment. Um, it's time consuming, can be time consuming. Um, and it's not something I think that we should be doing uh, pre-hospital because of these other assessment tools that we have available to us. You, you actually have to have, and they're like pictures. There's pictures, yeah. You have to have pictures 
and you ask them to identify certain things, you ask them to read words off of a page. And so it's, it's very time consuming yeah. uh, and cumbersome when we have better tools for pre-hospital care. Yeah. We got them there. They're, yeah. We recognized it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the main key is identifying a stroke and then activating a stroke and getting the patient to a primary or comprehensive stroke center. Okay. Um, so kind of talking about all that um, with pre-notification systems as far as you know, activating a stroke, that, that helps improve triage, evaluation, and treatment of patients and get them to the appropriate care they need. Uh, there's several studies out there showing that there are when pre-notification pre systems are used, like LifeNet, Pulsera, uh, onset to hospital arrival is much shorter from symptom onset. Uh, and getting patient either to door-to-needle, TPA, or to endovascular therapy. There's a goal to increase with pre-notification systems the amount of patients that go from door to imaging uh, within 25 minutes. And then a lower onset of door-to- door times is observed with pre-notification systems from 150 minutes to 113 minutes, which is pretty significant. Yeah. I bet you that could be, there's some barriers to getting a person into a CT from the back of an ambulance yes. without any delay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, they, the hospitals have asked for us to give information in those reports mm -hmm. <clears throat> and if they were pulsera provide that information mm -hmm. that that would actually allow them to pre-register or register yes. the patient yep. which then would speed that process up yep. would that is that right yeah absolutely so the more information <clears throat> that we have as far as what's going on onset um, when you activate the stroke we hold the ct scanner that way as soon as you get there we can go straight to ct we can get the ct non-conscious study do our assessment, and then after we've had non-con study, show that they don't have hemorrhage, we can discuss TPA if they're a candidate, look at their uh, indications, contraindications, and then we can go back and do further imaging with angios and, and perfusion studies. Um, and so really activating it, like you said, kind of giving us information helps us to get prepared for it. So looking at the management and treatment and patients that come with stroke, talk a little bit more about what we do once they get to the hospital. Now, um, the main thing I want all of y'all to know is identifying the stroke, activating it either with the, our hospital systems, uh, with Pulsera or LifeNet. I'm not sure you may know. I don't know what UT uses. I don't know if they use Pulsera or LifeNet. I've been told they use Pulsera. Pulsera. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know that. So that's a, good to know as well for y'all. Um, but activating it let, that way, the hospitals, ready and prepared to, to get things moving. Patients come in with stroke-like symptoms. We're going to look at their onset. Uh, if it's less than three hours, then they are eligible for TPA. Uh, and TPA is, quote, a clot buster. Um, and that helps to break that clot down, causing the ischemic changes, which lead to the stroke. Um, if they have an onset from symptom onset greater than three hours, so for example, a wake-up stroke or a patient that went to bed at 10 p.m., they wake up with symptoms, their onset <clears> is greater <throat> than three hours. It's not when they woke up, it's when they were last known normal. Mm -hmm. These patients are not going to be eligible for, T for TPA. So like I said, TPA is a clot-busting drug. Um, they have to, they, really, there's a lot of indications, contraindications to it. Um, they have to be within the time frame. So within three hours, there are 
cases where patients will be eligible for TPA if they present within four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and those criteria are that exclude them are over 80 years of age, yeah. if they've had a previous stroke or if they have diabetes, mm-hmm. or when we see them, if their NIHSS score is over 25, or if they're on any type of anticoagulants um, and Coumadin, regardless of their INR. Mm-hmm. Patients that come in within three hours, if they're on Coumadin, but their INR is less than uh, 1.7, are actually candidates for uh, TPA. Okay. Um, and I know that's a big thing for us to know <clears throat> in the hospital. Um, that's not going to change anything y'all do other than knowing the time of onset. We have that ability at uh, Mother Francis. I believe UT Tyler has that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so endovascular therapy is um, mechanical retrieval of a clot for large vessel occlusion. And so hospitals have to have a neurointerventionist that's trained in this. So this is a very subspecialized field of medicine um, and takes a lot of training. Um, and so we're lucky to have that, that here in East Texas uh, in Tyler. So the time frame for thrombectomy uh, and clot retrieval is 24 hours from symptom onset, but there are criteria for that. Uh, and so we'll evaluate those criteria um, when we see them in the, in the emergency department. Patients that uh, are candidates for TPA can still go and get endovascular therapy. Patients that are given TPA if it fails with TPA, but they're within 24 hours and have evidence of an LVO are still candidates as well. So mm-hmm. TPA does not change the ability to do uh, endovascular therapy. Yeah, because the half-life of the TPA, it's it's not as long as some would think. Right? Yeah, I, and I don't know off the top of my head. I don't want to yeah. say it incorrectly, but it's not as long as you would think. Yeah. Um, but patients, TPA is, is a very risky medication sure. because it does cause bleeding. And I've seen patients go from uh, an ischemic uh, stroke to hemorrhagic okay. stroke, hemorrhagic conversion. So I think TPA historically has gone through several different trials that came up to the point where they're at now. Mm-hmm. And so the time being the critical, because correct me if I'm wrong, if if our time goes out so far and that tissue goes from being ischemic to more of infarct, then that's the danger. It increases the bleed, your risk right? of having hemorrhagic conversion. Yeah. That's why the time frame is so important. Yeah. Um, and, and getting it to patients within three hours is, is key, which just goes back to identifying the stroke, activating, letting the hospitals know that way we can get things moving. When we look at Mr. at the endovascular therapy, there's a trial, the uh, Mr. Clean trial, um, which is a really <laughs> cool name, I think. <laughs> Mr. Clean. <laughs> Um, and this is just a study that, that, you know, I've read a lot about and in residency, we learned a lot about, um, and with endovascular therapy, um, in this study, there was functional independence of 32.6% with endovascular treatment versus 19.1% with typical therapy for strokes, which is a huge benefit. I mean, that's a, to me, that percentage is big. So that's a lot, a lot of patients that Mm. have benefit from endovascular therapy. I was going to run through real quick just the CPG that we have, our guidelines for stroke management. I encourage y'all to pull up the CPGs, review this, review the race assessment tool. That way you're, you're um, up to date on everything and know what we want y'all to do. Identify concern for a stroke. Um, really, there's what we have four R's. Uh, recognize, all right, so utilize the Cincinnati stroke scale. And like Michael talked about when you're Putting in your objective uh, exam, 
the neurologic tab essentially has that in there. Uh, so you'll do that. Then you do the race assessment to identify for possible LVO. We want to rule out any other stroke mimics. So you need to get a, a blood sugar or the hypoglycemic. Are they hyperglycemic like a, an HHNS? Um, are they septic? Are there any kind of toxins? And then you want to, after you've done your race uh, assessment, give them a, a score and a rank, and then you want to report. Seizures, is that don't limit the, the TPA or the consideration with the history of seizures like they may have in the past? Or? So I think with seizure, you worry about Todd's paralysis and that can cause unilateral paralysis. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have a patient, even if they've had a seizure and they're having paralysis of some sort or stroke-like symptoms, mm -hmm. I would still activate. <clears throat> and I, I would rather you overcall and it, we not do, we not treat it as a stroke, then undercalling it being a stroke and we miss it. All the people that are part of the stroke team are there anyways. Yes. There is a stroke team that's at the hospital 24 seven. Yes. So, um, we have a neurologist there available 24 seven. They come in to see all of our code strokes. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a team of nurses and rapid response that come down. They do the assessment alongside myself or the ER doc that's on with that night or that day, uh, as well as a neurologist. And so we have a team. And so if you have a patient, they had a seizure, they have paralysis, it may be TOS paralysis, but it's better to, in my opinion, cause a co-stroke and let us do our assessment because if we have concern for a stroke, we can still do TPA if that patient meets criteria. Uh, and then we can admit them, monitor them, take care of them, even if it may be a TOS paralysis. Okay. Stroke activation or report, the fourth R, we want you all to do that within 10 minutes on scene. Uh, if you identify any stroke-like symptoms, um, activate within 10 minutes. That way, the hospital that you're uh, transporting to or the receiving facility can, can be prepared for that patient. Kind of like I said, I would prefer you to overcall code strokes, and we can always cancel it once it gets to the hospital. I think I mentioned this when we talked about uh, STEMIs. I want, I want you to overcall it. I'd rather you call more and we cancel it than not call it and miss a, a stroke or miss a STEMI um, for that example um, that, that could have been treated um, per our guidelines. That's all I have for this podcast. Um, this is a lot. I think we could really break this down into multiple podcasts. Sure, sure. Um, so I really appreciate everybody um, listening and encourage y'all to kind of review everything. Um, there's a lot that you could go into in depth, look at our CPGs, look at these assessment tools. That way, when you see patients with stroke-like symptoms, um, you're prepared and know exactly what to do to get them to the appropriate care that they need. Awesome. Well, with that being said, I think uh, we'll close the door on this one. But looking maybe to expand later with yeah, some absolutely. of that stuff because I, I found myself going, oh, I'll hold off. I'll hold off. <laughs> <laughs> I have another question, but no, no. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be great. Um, you know, neuroassessments and, and all that, like I said, it's ever changing. Who knows what it's going to be like next year? Oh, it'll, yeah. And there's studies being done constantly on stroke. It's, it's a huge thing that, that the medical society looks at, neurology looks at. And so things will change. Yes. And we'll be back for another podcast. Absolutely. So we'll see you all later. Have a good one.